I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this episode will be covering Hunters from Beyond. Yes. Uh, which is the second story in, I guess, what we're calling the Philip Hastane setting, which is. Uh, or a, we could, I think we can call it the third. Yeah, I think Beyond the Singing Flame deserves its own, th- yeah, its own thing. Yeah, that's right. I forgot that they were two separate stories. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this setting is contemporary with Clark Ashton Smith's actual life. Yes. His own life. Uh, so this story was originally published in the October 1932 issue of Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror. Uh, it had the cover illustration, yes, which we will link to because if by any chance you read the story and found yourself spooked, then you should look <laughs> at this image and it will re- reveal to you that this is actually a comedy story and the hunters from beyond are like, like first draft Muppets. I would say uh, like the white ape from Lovecraft crossed with a centipede. Or like a white slimer. Yeah, but doesn't it have like a wolfish face? Yeah, though? it's got well, it's a simian, a simian lupine face, and then the rest of its body is just segments. It's like the coming of the white worm, but much smaller and with a monkey face. The best thing about it is that it's not even really making a scary face. It's making like a <laughs> hey, I wanted to look at that book face, or like, like what are you doing over there, face? <laughs> are you it's done really... with that? Yeah, it's like here I am in my winter jacket looking yeah. for a book. That looks like a lot of women's winter jackets I've seen. It's deeply unimpressive, and hopefully the artist is dead and doesn't <laughs> listen to our podcast. <laughs> oh no, I, I hope for long life for the ar- artist and um, and regret for his or her former former ways. But anyway, check it out because it's pretty funny. I, I didn't I didn't look that hard to find out who else was in this issue because I got so distracted by the image of the cover <laughs> that I kind of forgot to do my research. I, so I think that's fine. <laughs> and this week's reader is Jordan Smith. Yes. Is that correct? Yep. The Jordan Smith. The only Jordan Smith. I think I think in the world. I feel confident in saying he's the only <laughs> one in the world. It's such a unique last name. It really you can is. Tell. Usually we start off the episode with the very beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. But this story kind of starts out super boring, so our yeah. first reading actually doesn't come until um, a couple paragraphs in. So we should talk about where this story starts and how it starts. So it starts with Philip Hastain, and he's on his way to visit his cousin of some sort, second or third, he's not really sure, who is an artist, not a famous artist, named Cyprian Sincall. And it's a great name, Cyprian Sincall. It is a good name. And he finds Cyprian really boring. He's sort of um, trite artist and so he really doesn't want to be there early and he's running early so he thinks you know what i've got like half an hour to kill there's this awesome old bookstore here tolman's which i'm familiar with and so he decides to pop in and just browse what all's going on in there and uh instead be on time to his to his cousin's place 
I would I, I w- did a little bit of looking into try to figure out if Tolman's was at some point an actual bookshop mm-hmm. in San Francisco uh, or in California. And the internet was not forthcoming, but again, I didn't search that hard. So if any of our listeners know historical California bookshops, I would be curious to know if Tolman's was um, an actual place. And if they saw any demons while they yeah. were in there. And if by any chance a weird <laughs> white-faced demon was like, hey, guy, around a corner of a bookshop. Hey, is that Goya? <laughs> Dude, I love Goya. <laughs> okay, see you later. And he picks up a book of Goya, which will have a, uh, for people who are not familiar with the work of Francesco de Goya, will have a link to um, to a site that's a pretty comprehensive image of things like his gruesome Saturn devouring his sons and witches, his awesome witches in the air. And he did some fairly, um, we'll say, conventional paintings as well, but de Goya definitely had some interesting stuff going on so you can see why somebody who who was Clark Ashton Smithian or um like there's a lunatic behind bars that actually makes me think in some ways of some of Smith's drawings so you can see why a Smithian person uh would be of interest in picking up this book of Goya artwork so he's looking at all these weird pictures and then what happens he looks up from the book what I saw was a forward-slouching, vermin-gray figure, wholly devoid of hair or down or bristles, but marked with faint, etiolated rings like those of a serpent that has lived in darkness. It possessed the head and brow of an anthropoid ape, a semi-canine mouth and jaw, and arms ending in twisted hands whose black hyena talons nearly scraped the floor. The thing was infinitely bestial, and at the same time macabre, for its parchment skin was shriveled, corpse-like, mummified in a manner impossible to convey, and from eye sockets well-nigh deep as those of a skull there glimmered evil slits of yellowish phosphorescence like burning sulfur. Fangs that were stained as if with poison or gangrene issued from the slavering half-open mouth, and the whole attitude of the creature was that of some maleficent monster in readiness to spring. is when I'm, you're reading that and I'm looking at the picture of what this person drew and I'm like okay they basically made a checklist except for the bit about how it's ready to spring <laughs> right. and they fur on yeah. it too though no it just looks fuzzy it doesn't technically have fur but they oh, really right. yeah, went right. for the yeah. segment and things of the thing that lives in darkness and instead of like making it like any in any kind of bestial form it just looks like a freaking centipede without legs yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on this piece of artwork and its badness, but I can't help but, but like return to it after you know reading this par- this description and thinking, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like they accurately drew what was described, but totally missed the point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, devoid of of how the picture looks, the um, Hastain is super freaked out by seeing oh, this yeah. creature just materialize in a bookstore as he's looking at a Goya book. And at at first he's just staring at it. And then it kind of, it moves. He says it moves, but he doesn't actually see it move because it Mm -hmm. moves so fast. So it kind of just like materializes over the book and drools on it. And then he freaks out and drops the book. And then the bookseller, Tolman, comes over and checks the spine to make sure it's not damaged. (laughs) Yeah, the second the book hits the floor, the creature (laughs) vanishes. And, of course, Tolman is mostly he's like, are you okay? But he's really mostly concerned about the book. And 
somehow Hassane doesn't even remember it, but he ends up buying the book probably because he feels guilty about having dropped it. Yeah. I like this because um, for two reasons. One, California. We don't often get weird tales set set in California. Do mm -hmm. we? Not really, right? No, no. Usually like New England Gothic. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, write what you know. Yeah. And that it this thing materializes in the daylight, which he remarks on that it's not something you would really expect to happen in full sunlight and during the happy right. day. I think it's also a a moment to note that something that we'll probably talk about a little bit more in the next episode, which is that one would assume from this passage and Hestane's response to it that this it takes place after City or no before City of the Singing Flame. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately we should probably have a conversation just about how there really isn't any continuity yeah. to Philip as no. a character mm -hmm. whatsoever. It's kind no, of there like, definitely isn't. He's like a Looney Tunes character. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which At the episode. end of the episode, he goes back to exactly how yeah. he was before. <laughs> He's like, yeah, he's like a Weird Tales sitcom. <laughs> right. We laugh at the end and then the next episode. Yeah, everything goes back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he uh, buys the book and he... I, the other funny thing I think about this next part is how he really, really thinks that Cyprian is a bore. Like, yeah. <laughs> he thinks he's a bore to the point that he just saw in broad daylight like a slavering otherworldly monster. And he's like... You know what's going to calm me down? <laughs> Seeing my super boring cousin. <laughs> and looking at his Lord knows... stupid boring art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Looking at his still life, uh, <laughs> which will be so mind-numbingly boring <laughs> that I'll forget all about the terrors uh, that I just witnessed. Such a beautiful banality, as it were. <laughs> oh, Hestane. <laughs> Even his grotesques would seem sane and ordinary by comparison. Well, thank goodness mm -hmm. for that, eh? But, surprise... He gets there and finds his cousin changed. Indeed. He's, he had been an amiable and somewhat flabby-looking youth, always dapperly dressed, with no trace of the dreamer or the visionary. It was hard to recognize him now, for he had become lean, harsh, vehement, with an air of pride and penetration that was almost Luciferian. His unkempt mane of hair was already shot with white, and his eyes were electrically brilliant with a strange knowledge, and that somehow vaguely furtive as if there dwelt behind him a morbid and macabre fear. So he had like a makeover. You know what Johnny Depp looked like for um, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd? Todd? Yeah, yes. Totally. That was where, yeah. where, where, right, where my brain went. Okay, you got the streaks of white, you got the, the unkempt hair, you got the furtive look. It was perfect. Yeah. And then he sees his art, and his art is completely different. It's amazing. The change in his sculpture was no less striking. The respectable tameness and polished mediocrity were gone, and in their place, incredibly, was something little short of genius. More unbelievable still, in view of the laboriously ordinary grotesques of his earlier phase, was the trend that his art had now taken. All around me were frenetic, murderous demons, satyrs mad with nymphalepsy, ghouls that seemed to sniff the odors of the charnel, lamias voluptuously coiled about their victims, and less nameable things that belonged to the outland realms of evil myth and malign superstition. Sin, horror, blasphemy, diablery, the lust and malice of pandemonium all had been caught with impeccable art. The potent nightmarishness of these creations was not calculated to reassure my trembling nerves. And all at once I felt an imperative desire to escape from the studio, to flee from the baleful throng of frozen cacodemons and chiseled chimeras. 
So Hastine's getting it from all sides now. <laughs> yeah. Comes in and finds himself surrounded by stuff that's just as freaky as what he saw, although not the same as what he saw in the bookstore. He's pretty impressed. And when he came in, um, it took it took Cyprian a long time to answer the door once he mm -hmm. knocked. And when he came in, he saw there was a sculpture that was that's covered by a burlap sack or some kind of tarp. So there's there he assumes that that's the most current sculpture that Cyprian's working on. You don't see it yet. And they have this weird exchange. One of a couple weird exchanges. Like, it's funny. These stories, The some of the dialogue later in this one I was into, but these early exchanges between Cyprian and, and uh, Hestane, I was just... I had a very Tim Mucci reading Ugo <laughs> response where I was like, this is just some stilted yeah. business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what do they talk about? Well, Cyprian notices that Hestane is, is shocked, and, and then um, Hestane ca calls him or says that he might become the Michelangelo of Diabolism, which I think is an awesome That's a really cool moniker. Call. Yeah. Yeah. And Cyprian kind of, like, does a very unsubtle, like, where he's like, yeah, I've gone pretty far. And, Further even than you think, probably. And you wouldn't um, know anything about what I've seen, you know? You might try to do something worthwhile in your fiction, but really, you don't... You've never had any experience, Phil. I mean, Philip Hastane. All right, take it easy. <laughs> and here's some of the the experiences that Cyprian says he's, he's had. Um, he says... Uh, your stories hardly show anything of the kind, anything factual or personal. They are all palpably made up. When you've argued with a ghost, or watched the ghouls at mealtime, or fought with an incubus, or suckled a vampire, you may achieve some genius in characterization and color along such lines. So he's just hanging around uh, watching ghouls. Like, I love it, but also that's, I think, like the, that's, I think, uh, a very specific Pikmin reference mm -hmm. in the middle of that. And this whole story is kind of like a rewrite of Pikmin's model. Uh, definitely. In one of his letters, Smith noted that it was someone inspired by Pikmin. Although he, def he definitely took, well, he took a different take on it, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but it's like, I think a little bit more than somewhat. Yeah. Um, other thing that I kind of liked in the middle of this is when um, Cyprian has his, like, his, his, he like lays out his philosophy, like the world in which we live isn't the only world. And some of the others like closer at hand than you think. The boundaries of the scene and the unseen are sometimes interchangeable, um, which seems to be like the lesson that Hastain learns in every single yeah. one of these stories. I was like, thinking, <laughs> I, I feel like we learned this in City of the Singing Flame. Yeah, and then like in in Beyond the Singing Flame, we learn more we might about learn it again. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So after he goes through all of that stuff, um, Hastain gets all defensive and wants to prove that he's he does see stuff too. And then he tells him about the uh, seeing the monster in the bookshop. <laughs> that was awesome. And then, but hold on. Okay, so yeah, he says that, right? Mm -hmm. And then, hold on. Where, where do we get our reading? Okay, before me. Okay, so it happens before he reveals it. So, so Hastane is like, yeah, I just saw this monster. He describes it. And then um, Cyprian says, you're becoming more psychic than I imagined. Which is <laughs> yeah. a super, super weird thing to say because it's not like they were having a conversation about how Hestane was psychic. Mm -hmm. I don't, under I don't well, understand. Maybe he just thinks, oh, you're kind of a little bit psychic. How about that? I thought you were the boring one, Hestane. <laughs> it's just, I think it's just the then I imagined. That seems weird to me because it's not like, it feels like it was part of a larger conversation about like, Hestane must be a little bit psychic. 
Whoa! He's way more psychic than I imagined. <laughs> so as he says this, he lifts the sheet of burlap from his most recent piece of artwork. Before me, in a monstrous semicircle, were seven creatures who might all have been modeled from the gargoyle that had confronted me across the folio of Goya drawings. Even in several that were still amorphous or incomplete, Cyprian had conveyed with a damnable art the peculiar mingling of primal bestiality and mortuary putrescence that had signalized the phantom. The seven monsters had closed in on a cowering naked girl and were all clutching foully toward her with their hyena claws. The stark, frantic, insane terror on the face of the girl and the slavering hunger of her assailants were alike unbearable. The group was a masterpiece in its consummate power of technique, but a masterpiece that inspired loathing rather than admiration. And following my recent experience, the sight of it affected me with indescribable alarm. It seemed to me that I had gone astray from the normal, familiar world into a land of detestable mystery, of prodigious and unnatural menace. And this is, he says, uh, he reveals that the name of this piece is The Hunters from Beyond. Dun, dun, dun. dun. And they are, I mean, these things look, they do look like what he saw in the bookstore, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But more of them, which is scary. Yes, seven of them. So now Marta reveals herself. The the model, the woman model, steps out from behind the... um... Chinese screen. Yeah, that's the one. And then what happens to him? Well, then she, uh, Marta... Steps out of the out from behind the screen, and uh, Cyprian doesn't introduce her. And she goes up to him, and they talk by the door uh, very quietly. Um, and he 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 seems like he comments that she seems concerned about what's going on, but he thinks that they're just um, trying to figure out a next date to meet mm-hmm. and pose. Um, and then she she gives him a a queer look. And then leaves, um, and then he he introduces her and says that was Marta, um, and he makes a point in saying that she's half Irish, half Italian, yeah, uh, <laughs> and that her, his sculptures are making her feel uh, nervous. And then he asks him, uh, "What's up with those sculptures? Uh, if you could see all this stuff, does that mean those things are really real?" Yeah, and and he's like, well, I mean, do they are they real? Do they exist? And he just goes, <laughs> or rather, he laughs with evil subtlety, which I guess is a little more like. <laughs> he laughs twice. There's one time with evil subtlety, but the first time he laughs, it is actually how you just did it. It's like it says it's a jarring note that was like the catchination of a sorcerer. Which <laughs> there we I go. Think you, I think you actually just captured pretty well. Awesome. <laughs> So after he this, it's, he's kind of freaked out, and he, they start talking about other topics, and and is Philip is just like, um, okay, well, I really want to go away back to the 20th century streets and be safe. So he continues to converse about random stuff, and then ex- what? Wait, well, hold on. Well, what kind of topics do you suppose one discusses at the Cyprian sin call after he's laid out the this like ridiculous statement that anything can happen? Wait, what does he say? He says. Yeah, anything may exist in boundless universe with multiple dimensions. <laughs> yeah, I think. See how I think of it is a bit as a comedy. Like, so how's your mom? I hear Grandma's doing pretty well still. She seems pretty you chipper say for that, ninety. But then there's there's one key detail that you're forgetting from earlier in the story, which is that he doesn't even know if it's a second or third cousin. <laughs> like, well, yeah, maybe they're doing <laughs> genealogy. So, like, I remember my mother told us we were cousins. How close are we again? And he does pull himself away and yes. um, 
pretends that he's got a luncheon appointment and promises that he'll return at some point. And then when he goes outside uh, at the foot of the stairs, he finds the model, Marta. So Marta is concerned about Cyprian. She thinks that he's going down a dark and dangerous path with his artwork. Uh, and she feels like Hastain, even though they're only distantly related, might be able to interfere with what he's doing. But Hastain, I think, rather rather sensibly says that he has no influence. Um, and it says an artist has the right to choose his own subject matter, even if he takes it from the nether pits of Limbo and Erebus. Which uh, I think is fairly sensible of Hastain. I mean, you know, what's he going to do? Go up there and yeah. uh, arrest him for something? Yeah. <laughs> Second cousin's arrest. Can you can you citizens arrest a sorcerer? Because I feel like that doesn't end badly. It's the only way to arrest a sorcerer, ultimately. <laughs> I feel like he would have to do it very quickly before he could call anybody up. He definitely brushes away all of her concerns, even though they are, in fact, true concerns. And ones that he shares. But he does know that he doesn't have any, any influence. I think he's right about that. So he kind of goes and lives his life for a little while. He basically does the exact same thing in this story he does in Devotee of Evil. He, like, mm-hmm. leaves... And, like, can't get out of his head. It's, like, powerless to shake off this feeling that that maybe these hunters from beyond are pursuing him or, or something. No, it's not that he stays away for multiple days, but he keeps, he, he goes to, it's, it's probably a lunch appointment, so it's probably maybe noon or early afternoon. And he goes out the whole day. He doesn't reopen the, the um, the Go- yeah, the Goya book. He feels like he's being pursued, so he... He goes around, he spends the evening in cafes and theaters, he spent the day part watching the streets, and then he spent hours and hours um, insomniac, and finally, a little before dawn, he just falls asleep from complete exhaustion, and he doesn't have any dreams. Just to go back a little bit, um, when he says that he's, he feels like he's being followed, and in the beginning, when he was going up the steps to Cyprian's loft, he felt like something was rushing up ahead of him up the stairs, something invisible. Um, so he's got huh. this feeling like yeah. he's being hunted because, you know, hunters hunt. Yeah, they do. <laughs> hunters hunt. <laughs> and that'll take us into our next reading. <laughs> It was almost noon when I awoke, and found myself staring into the verminous, apish, mummy-dead face and hella-loomed eyes of the gargoyle that had crouched before me in the corner at Tolman's. The thing was standing at the foot of my bed, and behind it, as I stared, the wall of the room, which was covered with a floral paper, dissolved in an infinite vista of grayness, teeming with ghoulish forms that emerged like monstrous misshapen bubbles from plains of undulant ooze and skies of serpentining vapor. It was another world, and my very sense of equilibrium was disturbed by an evil vertigo as I gazed. It seemed to me that my bed was heaving dizzily, was turning slowly, deliriously toward the gulf, that the feculent vista and the vile apparition were swimming beneath me, that I would fall toward them in another moment and be precipitated forever into that world of abysmal monstrosity and obscenity. In a start of profound alarm, I fought my vertigo, fought the sense that another will than mine was drawing me, that the unclean gargoyle was luring me by some unspeakable mesmeric spell as a serpent is said to lure its prey. I seemed to read a nameless purpose in its yellow-slitted eyes and the soundless moving of its oozy lips and my very soul recoiled with nausea and revulsion as I breathed its pestilential feature. Apparently, the mere effort of mental resistance was enough. 
The vista and the face receded. They went out in a swirl of daylight. I saw the design of tea roses on the wallpaper beyond, and the bed beneath me was sanely horizontal once more. This is my favorite part of the story because Smith takes the gloves off and is just like, screw it. We're going we're gonna to just keep word after word after word. It's an abysmal monstrosity, and it's an obscenity, and it's precipitating forever. Everything is dizzy, and it's an evil vertigo, which is a hilarious thing to say. Like, what does that mean, an evil vertigo? What makes a vertigo evil? I don't understand. <laughs> Surely vertigo is an immoral thing to experience. I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to th- I'm, I've been trying to think what an evil vertigo would be like. Exactly. And so he just lies there in um, bed, having woken up in a sweat, until the telephone wakes him, wakes him up the rest of the way. It's Cyprian. I must see you at once! Oh, wait, no, sorry. Oh, hang on. Dead, hopeless tones of the voice. So, I must see you at once. Can you come to the studio? You must, simply must come, Philip. I can't tell you about it over the phone, but a dreadful thing has happened. Marta has disappeared. Thank well so much for not telling him about it over the phone. If I were worried about a telephone operator listening in, I I would be more worried about that part, you know, for later on when she's like, oh, yeah, I heard him. I heard him tell his cousin she disappeared. I bet he killed her. That's so not a San Francisco accident. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, actually, I've heard that all of the telephone exchanges in the 1930s in San Francisco (laughs) were run specifically by Cockneys. It was really weird. Yeah. So Hastain uh, gets dressed, and he's in such a hurry, he can't even eat breakfast. <laughs> uh, I actually feel really bad for Marta. The souls of narrative, Tim, and that's a very key detail. <laughs> it, you know what? I could not have eaten any breakfast, even if I had taken the necessary time. So you know what? He couldn't have eaten the breakfast anyway. He might as well have gone. Because he's already <laughs> feeling nauseated. So when he gets there, he finds Cyprian has actually changed. He's been, it's like he's been hit in the middle of the forehead with a bang with one of those um, hammers you use to stun a cow before you kill it. Or um, has gazed on the face of a Medusa. And he's just sort of vacant and then gets all animated about the fact that they took her. Maybe he didn't know it or weren't sure of it, but he's been doing all new sculptures from life, even the last group. Yeah, we, we kind of figured that out, actually. This is my favorite part of the story because it doesn't treat this like a twist it treats it like like it should be treated like we already knew it from mm-hmm. the beginning um and i appreciate that i appreciate that it's not like dun 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 he's just like yeah so i've been doing this from life and these things took, took her away and like okay that actually kind of works well i think it was interesting because um he he talks at this point about how one of the reasons that she was worried and apparently she didn't really didn't seem to bring this up in the previous conversation but that sometimes he um the things would be kind of bold and linger when he ordered them to leave and would sometimes appear when he didn't want them i think you're like that's kind of a pretty key issue with the old principle which is do not call up what you cannot put down right but there's this whole thing in here that i think is fascinating where they talk about what these things are Mm -hmm. and his and like his his lack of concern seems to be that that on the whole they don't actually have any purchase in the physical realm Mm -hmm. isn't that like that's what he thought yeah yeah, well, and they and they don't, but they don't even even later because they they hypnotize her to make her go. Right? Yeah. It's not like they've grabbed her; it's that they've they have they've, some sort of snaky mesmerism. Yeah, they've mesmerized her or something, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
he also like poses there's this whole cosmic worldview in here about how like anything that any artist has ever imagined is actually real but exists in this other realm yeah there are endless worlds contiguous or coexisting with ours in which these sorts of things inhabit all creations of myth and fantasy all the familiar spirits etc are resonant in these worlds and he just made themselves their master and levied them with his will and then from a dimension that must be a little lower than theirs and a little nearer to hell he called on these in-nominate things for this new figure piece. Yeah, that was a bright idea. And he notes that they have, it's not that they're going for human flesh, it's that they devour the brain and the soul. So they feast on the, mad, the minds of madmen and mad women. They devour the disembodied spirits who've fallen from the cycles of incarnation and have gone down beyond the possibility of rebirth. And so he, he thinks that um, she surrendered voluntarily to keep him from taking him, which, you know, I, I don't know if that's ever a bright move, because what's to say they wouldn't come back? So just as, they're, as they continue to talk about this, suddenly he gets this look on his face like, oh, this is, this is amazing, this is wonderful! And um, our, his stain turns around and sees that Marta is standing in the center of the room. She's there, in the flesh, she's naked. Except she's wearing a Spanish shawl that she must have worn while posing. But her face is bloodless. And her eyes are wide and blank as if she'd been drained of all life, of all thought or emotion or memory. As if even the knowledge of horror had been taken away from her. It was the face of the living dead in the soulless mask of ultimate idiocy. And the joy faded from <laughs> Cyprian's eyes as he stepped toward her. I think in this case it's idiocy in, in the old-fashioned way. So he steps up and like takes her in his arms and it's super sad mm -hmm. because she's totally gone forever yeah oh and they get a, like he he does see into the into this other world for a second doesn't he well yeah he like does a... but 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 cyprian doesn't like one who confronts the gorgon i was frozen by her wide and sightless gaze then behind her were stood an array of carven satans and lamias the room seemed to recede the walls and floors dissolved in a seething, unfathomable gulf amid whose pestilential vapors the statues were mingled in momentary and loathsome ambiguity with the ravening faces. The hunger-contorted forms that swirled toward us from their ultra-dimensional limbo like a devil-laden hurricane from Malibolge. Outlined against that boiling, measureless cauldron of malignant storm, Marta stood like an image of glacial death and silence in the arms of Cyprian. Then, once more, after a little, the abhorrent vision faded, leaving only the diabolic statuary. I think that I alone had beheld it, that Cyprian had seen nothing but the dead face of Marta. He drew her close, he repeated his hopeless words of tenderness and cajolery, and suddenly he released her with a vehement sob of despair. Turning away while she stood, and still looked on with unseeing eyes, he snatched a heavy sculptor's mallet from the table on which it was lying and proceeded to smash with furious blows the newly molded group of gargoyles, till nothing was left but the figure of the terror-maddened girl crouching above a mass of cloddish fragments and formless, half-dried clay. So now he's got two statues of her. <laughs> Oh, so it's a happy ending. Kim, I see it now. It's a happy ending. Guys, this is like one of the saddest stories ever because, you know, it's not one of those ones where somebody like she wasn't the one who was interested in meddling with evil. 
She was just a model who was in love with a sculptor, and haven't we all been there? I remember another tale of a sculptor in love with a woman. He said this sculptor's name was Blaise Renard, and his sculptures came alive and killed her. Oh, Blaise Renard. I forgot that his first name was Blaze. <laughs> Blaze Renard. Yeah, it's a super sad story. All of these Hestian stories, well, the City of the Singing Flame is sad. <laughs> but, they're, but they're all kind Even of like... Even beyond the Singing Flame, I was just like, what else? You well, yeah, heard me they're laughing. All, they're all, uh, they all sort of seem to be like similar meditations on an artist's relation with other worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes them kind of cool, aside from the, like, lack of Hestane being an actual character with any continuity whatsoever. I kind of like this story more than Pikmin's model. I do, too. I, I like it because, unlike, like, Pikmin's model is nice, but it's extremely passive. With this one, I, I feel like there's more going on, and it works. I, Pikmin, I, I like Pikmin's model a lot, but it mm-hmm. always bothered me that it, that it plays the reveal like a twist. Like, the, and then I looked, and I had a photograph in my hand. I'm just like, ugh, come on. And this one, like, you you avoid that moment, and instead you get sort of the consequences of that, which is kind of nice. Yeah, the horrible toll of, like, art that's connected, you could say. Like, art that's connected to something more. I don't think I have anything else to say about this. I might have more to say when we put all of the Hestane stories in conjunction with each other next time, but I don't know if I have anything to say about this by itself. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the Hestane stories would be very interesting for a, uh, a reflection at the end. But I'm, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing our next story, which we might have touched on last time as being appropriate for me, the devotee of evil. Unfathomable gulf is very hard to say.